If you have your Bibles, would you turn to the middle of your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes. If you're wondering how to spell Ecclesiastes, it's on the board here as well, the book of Ecclesiastes. Hey, by the way, if you're new, not just to Thrive, but you're just new to church generally, maybe you're just curious, you're exploring, maybe you're new to the Bible, new to Jesus, maybe coming in from another faith background or no background at all, we are so thrilled that you're here. And we hope that you find that Thrive Church is a safe place for you, a place where you can be yourself, a place where you can find some hope and some encouragement to help you start this brand new week, a place you can find some community. And if you've got any questions at all, if we can help you in any kind of way, you can always email us at info at thrivechurch.ca. We would love to hear from you. Welcome to Thrive Church, everybody. Well, we're doing a series here at Thrive. It is called New Hearts, New Horizons. It's because we absolutely believe that God has new horizons, not just for you personally, but for even us as a church family. If you believe that, say amen. And because God has new horizons for you and for me, we're talking about how do you make the most of a new horizon? How do you get ready for a new horizon? Because the fact is this, is it's really tough to make the most of a new horizon unless you've got a renewed heart. Because the condition of your heart impacts the reach of your horizon. And so in the series called New Heart, New Horizons, we're looking at how do you get a new heart for a new horizon? How do you work with God toward a new heart for a new horizon? And I'm super excited to bring this message to all of you today. Today, the message I'm here to give you is called giving your work new meaning. Giving your work new meaning. Yes, we're talking about your work today. Whether your work is as a stay-at-home parent or you're a student right now, or you're maybe working in the marketplace, maybe you run your own business, maybe you're working as a staff in a company, maybe you're retired and you're like a professional volunteer babysitter right now. Whatever the case may be, we are talking today about giving your work new meaning. Turn your name and say, your work can have new meaning. Your work can have new meaning. We're going to talk about today. Let me just begin with a story today that I hope will make you laugh. Many, many years ago, I worked at a law firm in Taiwan where I was kind of like the right-hand man to the senior partner of this firm. He was a very reputable, very famous lawyer, one of the top business and corporate lawyers in Taiwan, and I had the chance to work with him on you know, many different things, on so many different deals, different transactions, contracts. He even gave me access to his own email account so I could actually send emails on his behalf without him checking. That's how much Trust there was between us uh, and loved working with this senior partner of the firm. But one of the things that I will never forget is one job that he gave me that I wish I will never have to do. You know what that was? It was one day when there was an American lawyer who came to Taiwan and he called my senior partner and he said, hey, uh, I'm doing a legal deposition here in Taipei. And uh, I just, and a legal deposition is just a very formal way of interrogating someone or asking questions to a witness. And he said, I'm doing a legal deposition. I'm, I, I need a court reporter. I need someone to write down everything we're talking about. Do you guys have a court reporter? And then my senior lawyer, my senior partner, he thought about, he's like, hmm, we don't have a court reporter, but I got a guy who types very fast. And that was me. Uh, apparently he thought I typed kind of fast. And so he said, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take this laptop. I've never used this laptop before. He t- take this laptop and go to this boardroom and you are gonna be a court reporter for the next two days. I'm like, I don't know the first thing about court reporting. I don't know court reporting shorthand. I have no idea what I'm doing. And so I go into this boardroom. It's very, very formal. You know, everyone's very, very quiet. And then I sit down and I open up the computer and I start to type everything that I hear. It's kind of stressful. But the biggest reason why it was so stressful is because my computer wasn't working. 
What was happening is if on my keyboard, there was a letter G that I would press. And every time I press the letter G, not just one G would show up, but six or seven Gs would show up. I'm like, wow. And then if, if people asked me to read what I was typing, I would say, uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm here to give this legal deposition to this man, Greg. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what is going on? Would you turn to him and say, I'm glad that wasn't me? Would you write that in the chat room? I'm glad. That wasn't me. And you know, I even went back to the office after those two days, stressed out of my mind, and I went up back to my boss and said, hey David, you know I love you. You know I'll do almost anything for you. But if you ever give me a task like that again, I think I might have to say goodbye. Because that was just a really frustrating time at work on that particular day. Why do I mention this story? It's because have you ever been frustrated at work? And maybe not just for a day, but for a season of life where you just feel like work is so frustrating. Maybe to the point where you feel like, man, work is even meaningless. Like, like why am I, what I'm even doing, what am I doing? Have you felt that way before? You know, they say that the average person spends approximately 90,000 hours at work in their lifetime. Picture that, 90,000 hours. A, a, a typical workday is eight hours. 90,000 hours is a lot of time. And if you do not enjoy your work, if you find no meaning in your work, that is a whole lot of time to be really unhappy. And so my question to you is, how do you find new meaning for work? We're gonna be talking about that today. Whether you're a stay-at-home parent, you're a student, you're a business person, you're owning your own business, you're working for some other company, you're retired, whatever the case may be. Today we're talking about how do you find new meaning for the work that you do every single day. Let me start with a little survey that we'll use the chat room for right now. Is that If you had to rate how much you enjoy the work that you do today on a scale of zero to 10, zero meaning I really, really, really dislike what I do. I wish I don't have to do it. I wish I could quit like two weeks ago. 10, that's zero. 10 is I could do this for the rest of my life and you don't even have to pay me. All right. So between zero and 10, how do you rate the work that you do today? If you're kind of scared that maybe your boss is watching, then maybe hold off or maybe just find another way to express it. But if, if you dare, don't just give the score, but maybe tell us what work do you do? Like what, what industry are you in? Would love to hear in the chat room what your score is. Here's it. I want you to go ahead and do and put that, put that in the chat room right now. Because here's the thing. If you find that your, your work is, fr is frustrating, you are not alone. A lot of people are frustrated at work. If you find that work is enjoyable, and meaningful, then praise God for that. But my hope is that today's message is gonna help you see your work in a new light. It's gonna challenge the way that you view work from a biblical perspective. And see, to start off today, we're gonna look at a book that is one of the most puzzling books in all the Bible to read. It is called the book of Ecclesiastes, right in the middle of the Bible. Everyone say Ecclesiastes. And see, we're actually studying the book of Ecclesiastes as a church every single day. If you want to get in on that, go to mythrob.info and subscribe for Pastor JB's Game Time Sharings because we're looking at passage after passage in the book of Ecclesiastes. Fascinating book, but it's one of the most puzzling books in the Bible. Let me tell you a little bit of why. See, the book of Ecclesiastes is about a guy. His name is Kohelet. Kohelet, that's a Hebrew name. And when you translate it into English, very often English Bibles will translate as the teacher. Kohelet is not a proper name, but it's more like a title. And this guy who's writing or is talking in Ecclesiastes, his name is Kohelet. And many people over the centuries have identified Kohelet as King Solomon, the third king 
of Israel. And why is that? It's because when you read how Kohelet describes himself in the book of Ecclesiastes, you're going to find that the things he says really sound like King Solomon. He is the son of David. He is a king who rules over Israel in the city of Jerusalem. He has more wisdom than any ruler that ever came before him. He's amassed incredible amounts of wealth. He has you know, huge infrastructure projects. He has these proverbs that he shares with the people to impart wisdom and knowledge. He collects wise sayings. He owns his own harem. He has all those things. And the person who most closely matches that description is none other than King Solomon. And while some people might debate, is it really King Solomon? It's not. I believe it's safe to say and safe to conclude, reasonable to conclude, that Kohelet, who's talking Ecclesiastes, is King Solomon toward the end of his life. It's King Solomon during the last years of his life, during the second half of his reign. You know, a few weeks or a few months ago, we studied the book of Proverbs in a series called Rise Up and Wise Up. And in this series, we looked at the book of Proverbs. And this is, this is Solomon early on when he's in very much in his prime, when he's all about, you know, fearing God and doing the right thing and teaching others to do the same thing. And he got off to such a great start as the new king of Israel. He humbled himself before God. He surrendered his issues to God. He's like, you know, I'm just a child. I have no idea what I I am doing. God, give me wisdom to know how to rule and how to be a king. God gives him that wisdom and he's off to an amazing start where he's fearing God and teaching other people to do the same. That is the book of Proverbs. But in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're into a different part of his life now where he's kind of gone off onto another track. And when you hear him talk in the book of Ecclesiastes, he doesn't sound like the same guy we read about in Proverbs. In Ecclesiastes, he sounds like this older, jaded, disillusioned version of King Solomon. And if you don't believe me, why don't you read with me right now, Ecclesiastes 1, 1, and 2 together with me. Read it in a big, loud voice. What does it say? It says, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. See what's going on. Stop right there. Here we're introduced to one of the biggest themes in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's the theme that everything is meaningless. And the word in Hebrew that's used and translated as meaningless is the Hebrew word, Hevel, H-E-B-E-L, Hevel. It's spelt with a kind of, it's pronounced with a little V, so it's Hevel. And it literally means a vapor or a breath. And when you use it in context, what you find is that Hevel can mean a bunch of different things. It can mean fleeting and temporary, like a breath. It's here and then it's gone. Or, you know, Hevel, it can mean absurd and it makes no sense. It's kind of meaningless. Or it could mean vain and of no value, just kind of like just worthless. That is also Hevel. And, and see, you know, one translation of Ecclesiastes 1 says, not meaningless, but it says vain, vain, it's all vain. And see, this is what Solomon is talking about. See, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, he's looking at different parts of his life and he's calling them Hevel. This is meaningless. And the first one, and the only one we're focused on today, is his work. In fact, he doesn't just talk about his own work. He talks about work generally, work that we all do on this earth. And this is what he says. Look at Ecclesiastes 1 verse 3 with me right now. What does it say? It says, what do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then north. Round and round it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. See what's going on? What is Solomon 
one saying. See, Solomon is sharing the first of five hard feelings that Solomon has toward work. And these also happen to be five of the most common hard feelings that people today have when it comes to their work. Maybe you can relate to at least some of these feelings. Let's go through each one right now and see how many you can relate to. Hard feelings that people relate to, that people feel toward work. Hard feeling number one, my work has no lasting value and isn't satisfying. Have you ever felt that way before? Have you felt that way before? Oh, what is the point of doing what I'm doing? Go back to Ecclesiastes 1, 4. It says, generations come and generations go, but the earth remains the same, Solomon says. And then verse seven says, streams flow into the ocean, but the ocean is never filled. Verse eight, the ear never has its fill of hearing. The eye never has its fill of seeing. All these are examples of busy, meaningless activity, Solomon thinks, where it doesn't amount to anything and it doesn't satisfy anyone. What's the point of it all? Do you ever feel that way? At work, you're like, what is the point? You know, you clock in, you clock out in a system that's much, much bigger than you. And you're like, what is the point? What difference does this even make? That's hard feeling number one. Hard feeling number two, nothing we do at work is ever really new. Have you felt that before? Nothing we do at work is really new. It's not innovative. It's not creative. It's just the same thing over and over again. Ecclesiastes 1, 9 and 10, Solomon says, history merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here is something new, but actually it is old. Nothing is ever truly new. See, that might surprise some of us. You might be, well, look at this iPhone. This wasn't here a hundred years ago, but you you gotta understand what Solomon is saying. He's talking from a much broader perspective. He's basically saying that no matter how many new technologies come in, how many new inventions come in, they're all basically the same thing. They're all these very ambitious attempts to make our lives better and maybe make some money as well. But in the end, do they really make life better? Are you really that much happier and more satisfied because you've got a phone in your hand this way? That's what he's saying is that there's nothing really new. And maybe that's how you feel with work as well. Is there, there's nothing that I'm really doing here that's innovative, that's creative, that's new every day's the same. That's hard feeling number two. Hard feeling number three, nothing I do at work will be remembered. Ecclesiastes 1.11, this is what Solomon says. We don't remember what happened in the past and in future generations, no one will remember what we are doing now. Hey, just a few days ago, we had Remembrance Day here in Canada where we remember the sacrifices of people who've gone before us who sacrificed so that we could have the freedoms that we have here in Canada today. So what is Solomon saying when he says no one will be remembered? Let me illustrate by saying this here. Unless you're a really big sports fanatic, you probably don't remember and you don't care who won the Stanley Cup in 1995, do you? Right, that's the New Jersey Devils, in case you're wondering. But you probably don't remember and you don't care if you're not a sports fanatic. If you are not a movie historian, then you probably don't remember and you don't care who won the Oscar for Best Actress in 1982. I don't even know, right? You know, other than trivia stars or trivia nerds, you know, can anyone name more than two people who have won the Nobel Prize for conferring the biggest benefit on humanity? Can you? Can you? The fact is that the point that Psalm is making is that of the billions upon billions upon billions of people who have stepped onto this earth and lived on this earth, 99.999% of them will not be remembered. They will be forgotten. And even the most famous of them will be forgotten in some way as well. So why bother working so hard when no one sees or remembers? Some of you are like, I can't believe this is in the Bible. Is it serious? This is the Bible? I thought this is the Bible of hope, but let's keep on going. Hard feeling number four, the work I do isn't worth the pain and stress I go through. Have you ever felt that way before? Oh my goodness, it's 
not worth it. It's not worth the overtime hours. It's not worth the low pay. It's not worth this and that. Have you ever felt that way? This is Ecclesiastes 2, 22, 23. Read it. It says, what does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? By the way, you're going to hear this word under the sun over and over. And what does under the sun mean? It stands, under the sun stands for this very painful, very dry, very difficult way of living. According to Solomon, we're all working under the sun. And he says, verse 23, all his days, his pain, his work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind doesn't rest. This too is meaningless. See, note Solomon, he's just not talking about his own work only. He's talking about everybody's work. Hard feeling number five. Why should others get a free ride while I slave away? Have you ever felt that way before? Look at Ecclesiastes 2, 17 to 21. Solomon says, so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I'd told for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the work into which I poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too was meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who's not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. Wow, what's Solomon saying? He's complaining about how he has slaved away for years and years and years. He's amassed all this wealth and one day he's gonna die and he's gonna leave it to someone else and who knows if that person's gonna be wise or foolish. He's like, what's the point? And maybe you can extend that feeling to your situation. Maybe it's one of those where here I am slaving away and here are my coworkers who are doing almost nothing and they get to benefit from my hard work. This is meaningless. Or maybe it's one, why do I get all these, you know, little opportunities, but other people get big opportunities? Why do people get those opportunities? I have to scratch and crawl for every little thing. It's not fair. Why do I have to slave away while it's so easy for others? Have you felt that way at work before? See, these are five very common feelings that people have toward work. And these are five feelings that Psalm describes in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter one and two. And his conclusion at the end of it all, all work under the sun is hevel. It's absurd. It's meaningless. And that ends our sermon. Goodbye. I'm kidding. That, 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 that would be a really depressing way to, 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 to go. See, how can this hopeless, pessimistic message be in the Bible? Well, let me ask you this. Aren't you glad that Ecclesiastes is in the middle of your Bible and not at the end? Could you imagine if Ecclesiastes chapter one and two, we're at the end of your Bible. It is all meaningless. The end. Oh my goodness. Are you kidding me? I thought the Bible was a book of hope. Well, it is. In fact, the Bible, if you read it, it has tremendous hope. It ends with unparalleled, incomparable hope. But the thing you got to understand is that the Bible is not just a collection of 66 books, but it's also a story from beginning to end. And you've got Genesis at the beginning. You've got Revelation at the end. And if you read it, there is a progression. There's a story that God God tells through the 66 books. And fortunately, that's not the way the Bible ends. The Bible doesn't end with everything is meaningless, everything is empty, everything is hopeless. The Bible ends with incredible hope. And it just goes to show this is sometimes in order to get to a hope-filled end, you have to go through a hopeless middle. And maybe that's the story of your life right now, is that you're going through something that feels really hopeless right now, but do not give up because God is writing a greater story. Your end has not come yet. The end is still gonna be a hopeful one if you do not give up and you hang on to God. Amen. Amen. See, that's the story of the Bible as well. And let me just put it to you this way. I bought this at Save on Foods last night. So thank you, Save on Foods. Is that, how many of us know this? Is that the story of the Bible is like a donut. 
It's like a donut. Do you guys like donuts? Oh, I love donuts. But here you go. Let me tell you this right now. Is that the story of the Bible is like a donut from Genesis to Revelation. See, in Genesis at the beginning, it starts off super sweet. You know, you've got the Garden of Eden. You've got the creation of human beings, Adam and Eve, the creation of the world. You know, it's paradise. Everything is good. It, ends, it, it starts off so, so, so sweet. At the end of the Bible, it ends off even sweeter. There's God in the church. There's Jesus. There's a new heaven. There's a new earth. There's eternal life. There's peace. There's joy. There's hope for eternity. It ends off even sweeter. But in the middle, this is Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. <laughs> Ecclesiastes 1 and 2 words, empty. It's meaningless. What's the point? That is the middle of the donut. That is Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, you could even say, is the donut hole in the donut that is the biblical story. And, and that's, you got to understand that when you're reading Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, you're not, oh my goodness, this is the word of God for me. Everything is meaningless. No, you got to see it in, not in isolation, but you want to see Ecclesiastes 1 and 2 and how it fits in the larger story. And keep in mind, how did Solomon even get to this very depressing, disillusioned, very empty place? You got to remember this. At first, Solomon got off to an amazing start. He humbled himself before God. He surrendered his life to God. He said, God, let me do things your way. I want to fear you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to do things right. I'm going to do things your way. And he was blessed tremendously as a result. But over time, Solomon started to get sidetracked. Over time, the longer he was king, he started to believe his own hype. And he started to trust more in his own ways than in God's ways. And what he ended up doing, one of the things, among other things, he married hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of women. And he had 700 women, the Bible says, on like 700 wives. He also had 300 mistresses or concubines. He had literally a thousand women that he was sleeping with and that he would, and these women worshiped other gods. He would worship their gods as well. And what happened at the end of all that is that Psalm became extremely disillusioned and his faith became just a decrepit shadow of what it used to be. And that's why when, when you hear Solomon talking about life and talking about work in Ecclesiastes 1 and you don't hear this confident, vibrant, powerful faith like we see in Proverbs. Instead, what you get is a very superficial faith, a faith where you've got remnants, bits and pieces of the faith that he had once had, but it's a lot more confusion, disillusionment, kind of emptiness, kind of like, where is God? God is not close and personal. God is like far away. He's a mystery to me. He's distant. He's not noble. You know, what, who, who knows what's going to happen after this life is done? Maybe all we have is just what we have right now. So let's just eat. Let's work hard, let's enjoy life, let's be healthy, and maybe that's the end of it. That became Solomon's faith in Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. And see, what's the lesson there? Is that when we try to live life without God, when we try to live life as if we are the center of the universe and not God, we only end up empty. We end up empty, we end up disillusioned, we end up hopeless and really confused. And see, when you read Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, you got to remember how it fits into the whole Bible. It's the donut hole in the donut that is the Bible. And that's why when you go further and you read in the New Testament and how people look at work in the New Testament, it's a totally different thing. It's a totally different perspective. Nowhere in the New Testament do you see people saying, oh, my work is so meaningless. Oh, you, know, you see like Apostle Paul or John or Peter saying, oh man, life is so empty. Oh man, what's the point? Nothing lasts, nothing is new, nothing 
nothing's ever remembered. No, you don't get that message in the New Testament. Instead, you get the opposite message. You get the message that our work matters, that our work it counts. It, it's going to be remembered and that God is doing a new thing and I can join him in that. And why is that? Why is it that between Solomon and Ecclesiastes 1 and 2 and the New Testament, you get these totally different perspectives on work? Let me tell you why. It's because someone came in the middle who's greater than Solomon. His name is Jesus. Jesus changes everything. And Jesus is in the business of giving your work new meaning. And so let me end today by sharing with you five ways that Jesus gives our work new meaning. I call it five New Testament reasons to go to work. And if you're here today and maybe you've been a Christian for a really long time, but for the longest time, you've had the struggle of how do I integrate my faith on a Sunday with the work I do Monday to Friday? Like, how do I connect these two things? Well, we're going to talk about that today because today I want to give you five New Testament reasons why we go to work as followers of Jesus. And so if you're new to Thrive, awesome. We hope you get something out of this. If you could use new meaning for your work, I hope you take some good notes today. Let's get into five reasons to go to work according to the New Testament. Reason number one, I go to work to worship Jesus. I go to work to worship Jesus. I don't just go to work to pay the bills. I don't just go to work because I signed a contract. I don't just go to work because you know, I, I need to feed my family. I don't just go to work just as something to do, but I go to work because work is an opportunity to honor and worship Jesus. See, this will challenge some of us who understand worship is nothing more than singing or going to church. And we think that is worship. That's all their worship is. This will challenge some of us who think worship is lifting my hands and feeling warm, fuzzy feelings, and that's all that worship is. See, that's not just what worship is. See, let me give you a definition of what worship is. You can write it down today. Simple definition. Worship is treating anything, and better yet, everything you do as a way to give honor and praise to God. That's what worship is. It's, give, it's treating anything or better yet, everything you do as a way to give honor and praise to God. First Corinthians 10, 31 says it this way. It says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Everyone say, whatever you do. Whatever you do, whatever you do doesn't just include the songs you sing on Sunday. Doesn't include listening to this message right now or going to church. What, 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 whatever you do includes everything you do. Whatever you do, including where you go to work and how you go to work on every day of the week. And see, you, you even know that you know, in, the, in, in the Bible, the Hebrew word for work, avodah, is actually the same word for worship as well, avodah. It just goes to show that work and worship are two sides of the same coin. They were always meant to go together. They were always meant to go hand in hand. So the question is, how do you give God worship through your work? Like if, if work is an opportunity for me to worship Jesus, how do I do that practically? Is it where when people say hi to me, I go hallelujah, you know? Or, or, or you know, I, I've put, I put on full blast worship music, praise 106.5, you know, blast it in my office and everyone hears it and they're annoyed. You know, is that what worship is? Is that giving God worship? Well, let me tell you how it is. It's really simple. How do you give God worship through your work? Write this down. By giving your best at work and looking to God as you do it. By giving your best at work and looking to God as you do it. Look at Colossians chapter 3, 23 and 24. What does it say? It says, whatever you do, again, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Would you turn to him and say, it is Jesus you're serving. 
It's Jesus, the Lord Christ, you are serving. In other words, when you give your best, when you serve a client or a customer well, when you deliver on a promise, when you give your best on an exam or a project at school, when you bring joy to the people that you're volunteering with, when you give excellent service, you know what you do? You please God with your work. You give God something called honor and worship. And see, may, maybe you're here and you feel you're in some like dead end job. And you're like, you know what? No one notices. No one cares. This does nothing for my resume. You know what? Let me tell you this. Even if no one else sees, even if you get zero recognition, God sees the way you work. And you can actually impact God's heart with the way that you work, even when no one else sees. You can affect God's work by the way you work. Let me give you another thing about worship. Worship is not just an activity. Worship is an attitude. It's not just what you do, it's how you do it. And it's not just a Sunday, it's every day. And see, what, what if you don't feel like worshiping God at work? What if you're like, you know what? Work is so stressful, work is chaotic, work is frustrating. I don't feel like worshiping God right now. Well, let me tell you this. Let me give you two suggestions on how you can still worship God even when your work is frustrating. Two suggestions. Number one, choose an attitude of gratitude when you're at work. Choose an attitude of gratitude. Find something to be thankful for because there's always something good to thank God for even in an unideal situation. You can say, God, thank you that I even have a job. There are tons of people in our country right now who are looking for work and thank you that I have a job right now. It might, maybe it's not the best job or the perfect job, but thank you that I've got a job. You thank God that, you know, God, I get to do this right now. Even, I encourage you, even like as you're about to meet a client or you're about to meet a patient or you're about to do that project and you say, God, thank you that I get to do this right now. Because that's a cho just choosing an attitude of gratitude. When you do that, you're, what you're doing is you're not waiting for a feeling to overcome you. You start with a choice to be grateful. And when you do that, what happens, not only do you give more meaning to your work, but you give glory to God in the process. Amen? Turn to him and say, I got to be grateful. I got to be grateful. Choose an attitude of gratitude. Another thing, if you're kind of like, oh, work is so frustrating. Work is so stressful. How can I possibly give God worship in this place? Let me tell you this. Another suggestion. When you encounter tough times at work, under your breath, pray and ask God for help. Under your breath, pray and ask God for wisdom and strength to do what it is that you need to do. When you're dealing with a difficult client and they're spewing all these difficult words at you, under your breath, under your mask, you can just pray, God, give me strength. God, help me to love this person. God, help me to glorify you in how I handle this situation. Help me to worship you in this situation. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let me give you another definition for worship. Worship is doing your best with what is in your control and trusting God with what is out of your control. That's what worship is. It's not you have to control it all, but what is in your control, you do your best with it. And what is out of your control, you trust God with it. When you do that, when you do that at work, maybe in another situation in your life right now where things are uncertain, that's how you worship God. You do the best you can with what you have and what's in your control, and the rest of it, you trust in God. Amen? That's the first reason we go to work as followers of Jesus. I go to work to worship Jesus. Turn to him and say, I go to work to worship Jesus. Reason number two, write this down. I go to work to grow more like Jesus. I go to work to grow more like Jesus. How many of you know God is not just in the business of saving you from your sins and forgiving you of your sins, but he's in the business of transforming you and making you more like Jesus in your character, in your attitude, in your values, in your priorities, in how you use your words, in how you deal with people, in how you look at yourself. He's in the business of making you more like Jesus. And see, what is Jesus like? If you're wondering, if you're looking for a picture for Jesus, one of the best pictures you can go to, Galatians 5.22 
Would you look at Revelations 5.22 with me right now? What does it say? It says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, these are the characteristics of Jesus. If you want to know what Jesus is like, Jesus is perfect love. He is perfect joy. He is perfect peace. He is perfect patience. He is perfect kindness. He is perfect goodness. He's perfect faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And see, God wants to grow us in that direction. And one of the most important tools that God uses to mold us and transform us into the direction of being more like Jesus is your work. You know what? Is it, it's your work that God uses. See, does that mean that by working, you automatically become more like Jesus? No. It all depends on your attitude and how you respond to the situations you deal with from day to day. But can, can I give you a secret to help you in case you're wondering, God, how are you helping me be more like Jesus today? Let me give the secret. Ready? When there's a character trait that God wants you to develop in your life, he will often put you in situations where you are tempted to be the exact opposite of that trait. All right, let me illustrate. For example, how does God make you more loving like Jesus? Does he just kind of fill you with the Holy Spirit? Now you just love everybody. You're just so loving all the time. No, no, what happens? How does he give you love or make you more loving? He gives you coworkers that are a little hard to love, who have EQ that is lacking, who sometimes say the wrong thing at the wrong time. And you're like, oh my goodness, this person's so hard to love. And they're under the pressure of going, man, man, this is so hard. This is so hard. You're, you become a little bit more loving. Amen. Amen. Or how does God help you grow in gentleness? He gives you a very slow or picky client or customer who's always asking the same question over and over and over again. You have to gently answer them, right? That's, that's how he grows gentleness in you. Or how does God help you grow in resilience? Well, maybe he gives you a crying baby who is hard to console, who wakes up multiple times in the night and you're like, oh my goodness, when is this going to end? He's developing resilience in you. To your neighbor and say, no wonder God put you in my life. <laughs> No wonder God put you in my life. No, we love you. We love the fact that you're here. And see, here's the thing. How does God grow you, grow peace in you? Do you could use more peace right now? See, does he send you on a vacation and go, hey, be peaceful? You know, no, he doesn't. No, God puts you in situations where things are chaotic, where things are stressful, where things are out of control. And you need to learn to put your trust and find peace, not in your circumstances, but in God. That's how he trains you to become a more peaceful person. Maybe you're working in healthcare and you're really, annoyed by the people you have to serve, you know, there's a reason why they're called patience. Because maybe, just maybe, God knows you need to have more patience. Turn and say, I need more patience. I need more patience. See, whatever character trait God wants you to grow in, he will often put you in situations where you're tempted to be the exact opposite. But if you will respond the right way and say, God, rather than, this letting me, rather than me letting the situation tempt me, I'm going to let the situation train me. Then what you're going to find is more and more your work becomes a tool that God uses to fashion you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. See, so here's a question for you all today in this place. I want you to think about a challenge that you're dealing with at work right now. Maybe it's your schoolwork. Maybe it's your volunteer work. Maybe it's the work that you're doing tomorrow. I want you to ask yourself this question. By allowing you to go through this challenging situation, what character trait do you think God wants to grow in you to make you more like Jesus? Maybe it's love. Maybe it's joy. 
Maybe it's peace. Maybe it's patience. Maybe it's kindness. Maybe it's goodness. Maybe it's you know, self-control or gentleness or faithfulness. Look at Hebrews 12, 7 with me right now. What does it say? It says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what child is not disciplined by their father? No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. See, you might be in a place where you're often complaining about your work. Oh, it's so unideal. It's so not the way I want it to be. Could it be that God is actually training your character? That he's actually training you to become more like Jesus in your attitude, in your character, in your values. Does that mean you can never change jobs? No, that doesn't mean you can never change jobs. In fact, we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. How do you know when it's time to change jobs? Like, how do you know? How do you know? We're going to talk about that next week. But here's, that's reason number two. I go to work to grow more like Jesus. Let's look at reason number three. What's reason number three? I go to work to serve and make a difference. I don't just go to work to get a paycheck. I don't just go to work so that others can serve me. I go to work to serve. I go to work to make a difference. You know, Yale University did a study on the relationship between how people view their work and how happy they are. How they view their work and where they stand on a happiness scale. And they found this over a span of years where they interviewed people from every conceivable profession that there is. They interviewed them, they asked, how happy are you? How do you view work? And they found this, is that people tend to fall into three categories when it came to how they view work and how happy they are. And the correlation they thought was amazing is that the first group of people, they just saw their work as a job. They clock in, they clock out. It's a chore. It's something I have to do. And those people who are, I'm here just to pay the bills. I'm just here because I don't know what else to do. This is a job for me. This is my work. It's my job. On the happiness scale, they were on the lowest end of the scale. They were the least happy of all because it was just a job. For the second group, they viewed work as a career. They saw work as an opportunity to advance in life. Okay, I can get promoted. Okay, I can you know, maybe do this and that, and this could be a plan for the future. And for them, they're like, think, how can I get ahead? How can I make the most of this? And on the happiness scale, they, they, they were in second place. They were in second place. They viewed their, their, their job as a career, or their work as a career, and they said, you know, I, I'm, I'm relatively happy. That, that, compared to the others, I'm relatively happy. But you know, the third group was the one that blew the researchers away. They said that the third group, they didn't see it as a job, they didn't see it as a career, they saw their work as a calling. And they weren't just motivated by profits or promotions, rather they saw their work as having meaning in and of itself, as an opportunity to do something good. They felt that their work meant something to someone. And on the happiness scale, guess where they ranked? They were at the very top of the happiness scale. And see, here's the thing, researchers found that these people in the third group who saw their work as not a job, not a career, but as a calling, that not only were they the happiest, they also tend to advance the quickest too. Is that they would work harder and longer, and because of that, they were better positioned to get those opportunities that other people were missing. And what's the lesson there? Is that if you wanna give your work new meaning, don't just see your work as a job where you clock in and clock out. Don't just see it as a career where it's all about you and how you can advance, but see your work as a calling to serve and to make a difference. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says this. It says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Turn to him and say, you are God's masterpiece. Before you ever went to work, 
God went to work when he created you and he calls you his workmanship, his masterpiece, his work of art. You are God's work of art. And he shaped you in a very unique way to make a difference in this world that only you can make. Don't listen to the Solomons of this world who tell you it doesn't matter. You're not gonna make a difference. Nothing you do is ever new. Don't listen to those because you were shaped to serve God. You were shaped to make a difference. Don't just work to make a living work to make a difference. Amen. Amen. Every day when you go to work, ask yourself, who can I serve today? What difference, what impact can I make in someone's life today? Maybe it's the life of a customer, a client. Maybe it's the life of someone in my company. Maybe someone that I live with. Maybe someone that I work with. Maybe it's my boss. Who can I impact today? Work to make a difference. Amen. That's reason number three. I go to work to serve and make a difference. Reason number four, I go to work to lead others to Jesus. That's what followers of Jesus do. Now, don't get me wrong. Let's be clear about what we mean when we say, I go to work to lead others to Jesus. Say you work at McDonald's and say you're at the counter. Hi, welcome McDonald's. Do you want to receive Jesus? Oh, can I tell you about Jesus? Oh, you know how he died on the cross for our sins? And people are like, hello, uh, we're waiting here. Order 782, my Big Mac is waiting. Uh, excuse me, I've got more important things right now. Talking. Can I talk to you, please? Do you want to receive Jesus? No, no, hey, if, if you think that, you're, you're, don't be surprised if your manager comes up to you at the end of that day and goes, I'm sorry, we got to let you go. <laughs> we can't have you here. See, what do I mean that when I say your work to lead others to Jesus? I mean this, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 to 12. Read it with me right now. It says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Hey, what do we mean by that? What do we mean? See, we talked about living out loud here at Thrive. So what are we talking about? Work quietly? See, when you do your work quietly and you set a good example with your words and your actions, you know what will happen? People will take notice. And see, over time, maybe not immediately, but over time, God will give you opportunities to share your faith with the people at work, whether it's to pray for them or to give them some wise counsel or to you know, love them through a tough time or to invite them to church or to share the gospel with them. And the difference you make that at that time isn't just for now, it's for eternity. But it all begins with saying, I'm just gonna do my work well the best I can, honor God that way, and I'm gonna be the best example I can. In so doing, I believe people are going to notice. And when those opportunities come, I'm going to pounce on them like the tiger that I am. Amen? And see, here's the thing. Back at the law firm that I used to work for in Taiwan, there was a coworker of mine, super smart coworker, graduated from a prestigious law school, uh, you know, very, very smart, very, very hardworking. Uh, Her name is Miss Leanne. I'll just call her Leanne. And, you know, she was hardworking, super smart, but she was always very, very stressed. In fact, I remember at the end of pretty much every work day, it, like at the end, you know, the only three people left in the office were Leanne, her friend, her really good friend, Jenny, who also works there, and me. And, you know, as I'm leaving the office, I would always pass by their cubicles. They sit by, beside each other and I'd always pass by their cubicles. And so sometimes, oftentimes, I'd stop and say goodnight. And I would also just have a bit of chance to converse with them and see how things are going. And see, Jenny was a Christian. I'm a Christian. Miss Leanne was not. And you know, sometimes our conversations would just be about fun things. Sometimes, uh, you know, and this is also fun, we would talk about faith. And, she'd be, and she had the cutest accent. She was kind of educated in Germany too and you know, lived in Taiwan. So she would say, you know what? I don't believe in God. There's no proof. There's no proof. He said, there's no proof 
uh, that I believe in God. The cutest accent. And it was one of the things that she would say this is there's no proof that there is a God. There's no proof that I can believe in the Bible. There's no proof that Jesus and all that stuff. And you know what? We, we would just carry on our conversations and we'd build a friendship. And we'd, we, we would, we'd, we'd spend time in the office. Uh, I know I think Pastor Shar and I, once we took her to the movies, all, we, just, we just built a friendship. And at the same time, Leanne, she befriended a family of Christians. And this family would spend time with her on weekends. And, and one day, Miss Leanne, she's walking with, her do- with this daughter of this family. And this daughter is five years old. And, and this daughter, she would, she would hold Miss Leanne's hand. And for some reason, in the middle of them walking down the street, this little girl looks up to Miss Leanne and says, you know, Jesus really loves you, Miss Leanne. And for some reason, for some reason, when she heard those words, Jesus really loves you, Leanne, it struck a chord with her that nothing else had ever struck her before. And she was like, you know what? Uh, okay. And, and she started to think a lot more about Jesus. And she's like, you know what? Maybe I should go and check out church. She started going to church. And she started to realize the more she went that she had a lot of misconceptions about Christianity that just weren't true. That she realized that actually there's actually really good reasons, rational, logical reasons to believe that there is a God. That the Bible is trustworthy. That Jesus did exist. And he did die on the cross for us. And that he even rose again from the grave. And you know, it was one of those things where as she was going to church more, as she's discovering more about Jesus in the Bible, you could see her life changing from month to month in the office, where from being super stressed, there was like a peace about her that wasn't there before. There was a joy about her that wasn't there before. She would even start talking to other people in a very nice way about Jesus. And she talked to our boss and go, hey, you should go to church too. And you know, and all that stuff. And you know what? One day, one day, I can remember this. I'm sitting in my desk in my office and Leanne, she comes in and she says, uh, Justin, I want to invite you to my baptism. And like, you know, I, I remember that moment, like it was like yesterday and she, and, and, and I'm just like, and all my, all my, all of my I, I, I flashed back to that moment when she was saying, oh, I don't believe in God. There's no evidence for God. And now she's inviting me to her baptism. And I remember Pastor Shar and I, we, we went to her, her, her church and we saw her get baptized. It was an incredible moment. And it was one of those things where it was what yet another reminder that people in this world need Jesus. Yeah. And if you would do your work well, and set a good example and build relationships with people at work, God will use you to lead people to Jesus. He will. It's just a matter of time. So a question for, for you today is, who is someone you can reach out to where you work? Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom. You're like, all I have is this baby. I'm just taking care of a baby. No, you got to change your perspective today. You're not just taking care of a baby. You're raising the next leader in God's kingdom. You've got Thrive Discipleship Homeschool going on. And you can, you know, 24-7 teach the baby all you know about Jesus so that one day they're a greater leader in God's kingdom than even you are. You know, it's about changing your perspective and saying, who can I make a difference in today? Who can I lead to Jesus? Don't just work to make money. Don't just work to make a grade. Don't just work to make it through the day, but work to make disciples for Jesus. Amen. Praise God. Reason number five, we're going to close. There's a fifth reason that followers of Jesus go to work. I go to work to love God's family. I go to, lo- I go to work to love God's family. You know, we often think, you know, the reason I go to work is to provide for my family. And that's a good, noble, important, necessary reason that we go to work. We need to provide for our families, for our homes. But see, God gives you work, not just to provide for your natural family, but for your spiritual family, for God's family. 
See, sometimes we can get so self-centered in the way that we approach church. It's all, it's all about, you know, how can the church serve me? How can the church pray for me? How can the church take care of my kids? How can the church visit me? How can the church feed me? How can the church make me feel good? And, and then, but you know, you weren't made for a one-way relationship with your church where it's all about how we serve you. You were made to love your spiritual family. And see, just as Jesus spent himself on you, just as a church spends itself on you, you want to spend on God's family, the church. And in order to have something to spend on God's family, you need to work. It's part of why followers of Jesus go to work. Maybe you're here and you know, your, your one and only gift, maybe spiritual gift is that, you know what? You know, I, I don't preach. I don't teach. Uh, you know, I don't sing. I don't really like kids. Uh, you know, I'm not handy with tools, but I can make money. I'm kind of good at that for some reason. You know what? That believe that that is a gift that God has given you for his kingdom's sake and believe that it is just as important and meaningful a ministry to be a resourcer of the church than it is to do any one of those other ministries because what you're doing, you're giving the church resources for its mission. This is probably one of the most unsung but most biblical purposes for going to work. You go to work to love your spiritual family. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2 says it this way. It says, on every Lord's day, each of you should put aside something from what you have earned during the week and use it for this offering. The amount depends on how much the Lord has helped you earn. See, what is this called? This is called tithing. This is called taking a percentage. In the case of tithing, it's 10%. Tithe means 10%. It's taking 10% of what you earn and giving it to God as a response to what he has given us. God gave us his 100%. We respond. He only has to give us 10. Give him 10. And and see, how did God give us his 100%, you may ask? It's because when we were separated from God, when we, like Solomon, had gone astray, each of us to his own way, when we were separated from God because of our sins, when the wages that we had earned for our sin was death and separation from God, when we couldn't reach God no matter how hard we tried, no matter how good we think we are, when we couldn't reach God now, not ever, God didn't abandon us, God didn't fire us, God didn't quit on us, but because he loves us, he sent Jesus Christ to live the life that we couldn't live, a life that only God in the flesh could live. And not only did Jesus live that kind of life on our behalf, he died on our behalf behalf. On the cross where he died, he stretched out his arms to die for you and for me. So the penalty that we were supposed to pay for our sins, Jesus paid in our place so that we could be forgiven. So the debt that we owed could be canceled so that we could be reconciled to God. It's all because you matter to God and he loves you so much. He sent Jesus Christ for you. Jesus gave us 100% for you. If you believe that, give God a big hand this place together right now. Amen. And see, for Jesus, there is certain work that does matter, that is new, that will be remembered. And when Jesus hung on the cross and said, it is finished, it shows that there is certain work that matters so much that Jesus was willing to die on the job to finish that work. He died and said, it is finished, so that he could complete the work of bringing us back to God. And see, that's how much you mean to God. And not only did Jesus die, but he rose again so that through Jesus Christ, you and I could have a relationship with God and have meaning in our lives and meaning in our work. When you live for Jesus, what happens? Life and work take on a new meaning. Today, we've learned five reasons to go to work, five New Testament reasons. I go to work to worship Jesus. I go to work to grow more like Jesus. I go to work to serve and make a difference. I go to work to lead others to Jesus. And I go to work to love our spiritual family.
And see, here at Thrive, we have a special way of calling these five reasons or these five purposes. They are A-E-I-O-U. And in fact, our vision statement as a church says it all. It's that here at Thrive Church, we exist for five purposes, which we call A-E-I-O-U. A stands for alive. It means we're here to worship Jesus. E stands for expectant. It means we're here to grow into Christ-like disciples. I stands for involved. It means we're here to serve God with our talents. O stands for out loud. It means we're here to lead others to Jesus. And U stands for united. It means we're here to love our spiritual family and our dream as a church is to build a church of 10,000 AEIU leaders in the city of Vancouver and around the world. Oh, come on, give God a big hand, a big shout in this place together right now. That is the vision of our lives. That's the vision of Thrive Church. It's these five reasons that we go to work. It's the five reasons we live to worship Jesus, to grow more like Jesus, to serve Jesus, to lead others to Jesus and to love the family he started. It's called his church. Praise God. You know, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, he's complaining about how work under the sun is so meaningless. I'm here to tell you this. You don't have to settle for just work under the sun. Because if you have Jesus in your life and you follow him, work under the sun can become work in the sun. Work through the sun. Work for the sun. His name is Jesus, the son of God. And so when that happens, your work goes from meaningless to meaningful from fleeting and temporary to having eternal significance, from something that's absurd and pointless to something that is full of purpose in your life. Where Psalm will say, vanity of vanities is all in vain. First Corinthians 15:58 captures it all for us and how we view work as followers of Jesus. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not vain. It's not meaningless. It's not hevel. It's meaningful. It's significant. It matters. It's new because Jesus is with you. Praise God. You know, I hope this has been helpful in giving you a biblical understanding of how we as followers of Jesus view work. But I just want to speak right now to those who are here who are maybe new to church. You're kind of knowing, what, what, what's my next step here? I, I want to let you know that the next step that God would love for you to take is to accept the forgiveness that Jesus died on the cross to make possible for you. We can never get to God on our own. I can't meet my own standards, let alone God's standards. But if you realize today that you, in your own ways, have strayed from God and you want forgiveness for sin so that you could have forgiveness and relationship with God, then I encourage you to pray this prayer with us today. It's as simple as praying a prayer. It's not so much the words you speak as the attitude of your heart, but if you want to do this today to receive Jesus into your life and ask him for his forgiveness, then we want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. What you can do is you can click the link that's in your chat room or scan the QR code that's on your screen. It's going to take you to a page with a, a simple prayer on it that you can pray. And just so that you're not doing this alone, I'm going to do this with you. In fact, we're all going to do it together just as a way to support those who are praying this for the very first time. And so I encourage us to click that link or scan that code as a simple way to ask Jesus for his forgiveness and to enter into a relationship with him. Why don't you do this right now? Scan that code, click that link, and why don't you pray this together with me, church, in support of those who are praying for the first time today. It's a simple prayer. Just repeat it after me. Just say, Dear Jesus, Dear Jesus thank you, you that because you love me, you, love me you, died on the cross you died on the cross to pay for my sins. Pay for my sins. You, rose again you rose again to give me life. To give me life. Today, Today I, open up my heart I open up my heart and I ask you, and I ask you please forgive me, please 
of all my sins and fill me with your Holy Spirit. I place my trust not in what I do, but in what you've done for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, if you prayed that prayer and you meant that prayer, then according to the Bible, you are forgiven of your sins. You are a child of God. You're a citizen of heaven. You have a relationship with God, not based on what you do, but based on what Jesus Christ has done for you. Can we give a a big hand to those of you who prayed that prayer just now? Praise God. And hey, if you prayed that prayer, let me give you a suggestion, encourage you to keep coming to church because every baby needs a family to grow up and we'd love to be your spiritual family. And on top of that, encourage you to get baptized. Baptism is not a graduation, it's a beginning. It's you simply saying, hey, I prayed this prayer to receive Jesus in my life and this is you simply declaring it in, in, a, in, a, in a wet way. <laughs> baptism is our declaration of faith and I encourage you to do so. You go to mythought.info, press the button called baptism for more information on that. We'd love to get you baptized. That baptism Sunday is November 21st. It's next Sunday and we'd love to see you there. On top of that, we've also got a gift to give you. Just go to the bottom of that page where you just prayed that prayer and it'll link you up to some gifts to encourage you in your relationship with God. Praise God. What an amazing Sunday we've had here at Thrive Church. Right now, I'm gonna ask the band, leave us in a song. Since Jesus gave his 100% to us, let's give our 100% to him. And so let's give God our praise, let's give God our worship, and I'll be back to lead you in one more prayer that you don't wanna miss. Let's do that together.